Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. A lot to chew on in terms of, you know, kind of where these central banks are going, where rates are going. Uh, we had clearly this uh, this ECB panel uh, in Portugal. A lot to chew on here, but I think the consistent uh, message, and again, I think the central banks have been consistent from day one. Here. Yeah. We are fighting inflation. Uh, after they, you know, I think the Fed obviously was, was late to the game, you could argue, with mm. that whole transitory talk a couple of years ago. Yeah. But since then, I think it's been pretty consistent. Yet, if you look at the WIRP function, mm -hmm. the markets are kind of suggesting that there may be uh, some changes to that. So we'll have to see about it. Our yeah. next guest actually has an informed opinion, which is great because we're just kind of, you know, we're, we're amateurs here. But Tim Dewey, he's the chief U.S. economist at SGH Macro Advisors, and he's a professor at the University of Oregon, the Ducks, uh, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Tim, we heard from the central bankers today in Portugal. You know, it, it seems like they're pretty consistent with our job's not done here. Right, right. And and that was the message from the dots for the Fed okay. uh, two weeks ago, that they were looking at another 50 basis points of, of rate hikes uh, this year. And Powell actually, I think, sort of opened up the chance for even more than that when he uh, sort of said, well, maybe we'll have to move in September, too. Or, you know, we want to rule out moving every other meeting again. And that's something that I don't think has, has really been on the, on the radar yet, the possibility that you know, 6 percent is still out there as an outcome. And you think next meeting is a definite hike? Yeah, I think I think we're. I mean, I'd almost say 100 percent, just yeah. just because I don't know everything will happen between now and then. But right. I think that decision was 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 made. In fact, if Paul is saying well, we might have to go again in September, that would tell me that that you know, July is for sure. Yeah. So, where does that take us into our discussion about a recession? Where, where do you think that kind of shakes out here? Because boy. The economic data is still pretty solid. Yeah, well, the the economy is always more resilient than people give it credit for. Mm. Uh, you know, the the focus right now is on recession because you can you can really chase those rate cuts down from from a market perspective, right? You know that there's there's a potential for some for, for some big gains on that, but um, uh, it's it's hard to knock the U.S. economy down. Is, is what we're learning here, especially now when we're still on the side effect of, uh, of an enormous amount of fiscal stimulus and, and easy monetary conditions that I think are still, you know, propelling um, underlying activity. So uh, it, is a recession going to happen eventually? Can I tell you that it's going to happen in the third quarter? It won't. Um, can I tell you it'll happen, you know, second quarter of next year? Maybe. Mm. You know, I think that from my perspective, the interesting thing here is that if you don't get that recession anytime soon, there's really room for central banks to keep hiking here in mm. the second half and, and it'll go on beyond July. Well, you mentioned stimulus, but Powell said that excess savings is not the main driver of inflation. He's more concerned about the labor market driving up income and consumption. How would you rate that comment? No, I, I think that's a, that's a real real issue. Is if you don't cool down the labor market, eventually, you know the, the we're, we've got some benefit right now, and we've got, certainly got lower energy prices. We're seeing headline inflation come down. We're we'll probably seeing used car prices come down, shelter prices. So we've got some benefits there that are really I think going to likely hold down inflation here in the second half of the year. Um, we'll, we'll see. Those any of those forecasts have actually you know turned out badly <laughs> um, uh, in the past. Um, but, but, you know, if you, if that's almost like the pause that refreshes though, right? Is that mm -hmm. that's kind of bringing down, uh, bringing up real incomes uh, and, and spending capacity that then would come to bear in the first, first half of the next year. So, you know, if you don't, re I, I think that if you don't, I think the Fed's right. If you don't start getting uh, a little bit more softer, even softer activity in labor markets, you are risking, you know, a, a repeat of inflation. Well, are, you, are you surprised that the labor market's been as resilient as it has been, we still have a jolts number that's near 10 million job openings. I don't know what you know, to make of that. I, I think that people, again, underestimate the resilience of the okay. economy. Is that what it's really about? Is that we, we really um, uh, stoked it, stoked, stoked the fire pretty hot. And um, uh, so, no, I, have, I haven't been surprised. Um, I'm not surprised by the rebound in the housing market at all. Uh, I think that, you know, the Fed has more work to do here. Well, can we talk about housing numbers we as well? Because housing starts leaping in mm -hmm. May. I wonder if you think that the Fed 
failed to anticipate how higher rates would sort of convince people to not put their homes on the market? And if that's something that you are weighing in your yeah, consideration? It, it, it certainly seems to be the case that the Fed missed, missed this. And we know this because, you know, last week um, uh, during Paul's testimony on the first day, he, you know, in, the, in his written testimony, he says the housing market's weak. Mm -hmm. And the second day he says, well, we met with some builders yesterday and it turns out the housing market's not that <laughs> weak, right? Mm -hmm. Um, actually, it's rebounding. And then we see the numbers start to come out. Now, I think that we've been writing about this forever um, because um, uh, it seemed obvious to us that you really did break the housing market in some respects by holding interest rates you know, near zero at the policy level for so long. You have so many people locked into these you know, 3% or less rates. Yeah. There's no selling pressure. Yeah. It's not like 2005, 2006, 2007. And even if some people start losing their job, you're not going to have mass selling pressure. Um, at the same time, you have the demographics of more and more millennials wanting to buy homes. And so the only game in that town then becomes new construction. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, we've thought you know, that the, the housing market was going to be more durable than people anticipated for, for what's really a substantial increase in mortgage rates. Yep. Um, Tell me about it. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if anybody's <laughs> tried to move lately, it's kind of a shocker. But, you know, these are things that once you sort of wrap your mind around and you need a house, you say, okay, well, you know, 7%, eventually I'll be able to refinance it in 5% or 4%, and i got to just pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. So, Tim, what's the biggest risk to this economic outlook for the next 12 months, do you think? Is it something exogenous or is there, because we had the bank issue a few months ago, people thought that might be a real challenge for the economy, but that's kind of abated a little bit. What's the biggest risk out there? Yeah, so um, it's, it's, it's always the exogenous shocks that get you mm. at the end, right? I mean, so one risk is the Fed, I mean, it's sort of a conventional story, is that the Fed has, you know, that, that the Fed's already over-tightened or will over-tighten, and eventually that will crash crash investment activity, and eventually firms will have to lay off workers, right? That's kind of the standard mm -hmm. recession story. Yep. But what seems to be emerging is right now the, the Fed is slowing the economy, and maybe it's not until we get a, a real good shock. You know, like last year, that Ukraine shock, or the, the energy shock from Russia's um, uh, invasion of, of Ukraine, that could have been the sort of recessionary yeah, yep. shock had not the economy been flying so high at that time. Yep. Um, so, you know, I, I, again, will a recession happen? No, no, but these are, they're, recessions are fairly rare. Right. I mean, yeah, so, and they're all idiosyncratic. There's a lot of, you know, we, we tell different stories about every session and we'll tell a different story about the next one than we right. have in, in any of the rest. Tim, for better or worse, you are one of our go-to people for the Pacific Northwest. Uh, <laughs> you're a professor at University of Oregon. That's where you got your PhD, undergraduate at the University of Puget Sound. Um, most of us don't get to go to that part of the world maybe as much as we would like, uh, kind, of, kind of remote. Talk to us about the economy out there, uh, housing market, just job market. How, what's, what's the feeling of the person on the street in University of Oregon? Uh, well, you know, the, 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 the job, I mean, during the pandemic, you had a lot of people move to, you know, move into these you know, Western towns to yep. be able to gain, gain, gain advantage of that. Um, I think some of that has faded um, in the Northwest, and the Northwest has, you know, more recently, I think, struggled with some of the things you see in a lot of the West Western cities. You know, the the the, the higher rates of homelessness, and um, so, uh, you know, I think the the economy is is solid um, out there, but maybe not as solid as, as we would we would have expected coming out of, of of this pandemic relative to where other places have been. So, did you guys get that influx of? I don't know, Cal I mean, just California, for example, did they come up to that part of the world? You know, the Northwest has regularly been a, a receiver of, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, of, 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 of immigrants from, from California, uh -huh. just like a lot of other places. And so, yeah, that's certainly been a longtime trend that supported um, Oregon's growth in particular. Um, you know, one, one, one interesting thing is Oregon's internal um, natural rate of growth has really slowed mm. to, to basically zero. Uh, is that right? So we really, what are some of the core really, industries out there that still? Well, you know, the, the, the big ones that people talk about, everybody knows, are Nike. Obviously, yep. Nike's yeah. got a big production yeah. there. And you have uh, Intel has a large manufacturing yeah. facility. And, of course, you have um, uh, we, in Seattle, you know, the Amazon, Microsoft, yep. that yep. sort of, that sort so of um, tech is around. big, big, yep. Tech is big in the Northwest. Um, we have still forest products. Um, yep. Certainly, also another historical, um, uh, you know, element of the, of the of the Northwest economy. Yep. All right. Good stuff. He's our one of our go-to people there. I this mean, is great. You don't yeah. see too many. 
not many people come through our offices from, you know. Well, I'll try to do it more often. Yeah, exactly. All right, Tim Dewey, he's the chief U.S. economist, SGH macro advisor. He's also a a professor at the University of Oregon, the Ducks right there. Appreciate him coming into our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Right now, let's get a little bit of a reset here. We're going to get a business class with Mr. John Tucker. All right, as far as stocks go right now, the major averages, they are mixed to little change. Now, the message that investors for now seem to be latched onto from uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell, a recession, he said, is not the most likely scenario as the economy remains fairly resilient at that uh, Central Bank Confab taking place in Portugal. So we're seeing a rally in mega cap stocks like Tesla and Amazon.com. The uh, chipmakers also trimming some of the earlier sell-off. That was driven by a report that the U.S. is considering new curbs, uh, shares of NVIDIA right now. That's one of the laggards in the NASDAQ 100. It is down just about 1% right now. Overall, S&P 500, one point lower. The NASDAQ 100 up 47 points. That's up three-tenths of a percent. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average, 120 points lower right now. I'm going to see if Madison knows this one. Okay. I know no. that you. I know that you're going to get this. <laughs> no, so the, no, no. The guy, the man who quizzes. brought you chia and clap on, clap off, has died. Really? Advertising executive Joseph uh, Pettit turned the chia pet and clapper light switch into retail sensations. I didn't know it was going to be a sad 91. story. You had me well, clapping into the microphone. He was 91. Is this? He had so a pretty this, good this life. Clap on. Now I seem clap so on, insensitive to the founder the of the clapper. Clap Clapper. So yeah, he's he's gone. John. Okay, that's a, a giant in the, in the in the business. All right, John Tucker, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate it. You're listening to the Team Cantor Live Program, Bloomberg Markets weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Now we've got the U.S. government saying. Hey, hey, let's think about what chips we're yeah. exporting to China, uh, and that's an issue for NVIDIA and some of the other names. So let's bring in somebody who kind of is smart on this stuff. We pay him to be smart on this stuff. That's Mandeep Singh. Um, he's head of our, our tech research at Bloomberg Intelligence, along with uh, some other guy out in Chicago. Um, Mandeep, talk to us about kind of just the news today about the government and, and it's wanting to maybe put a curb on the export of some of our uh, best chip technology to China. Well, so I think so far this was probably a low, uh, you know, probability event when you think about the odds of, uh, you know, government going full into, you know, imposing a ban, yep, and yep. which happened in uh, Russia, by the way, last year when uh, the war uh, broke. And uh, I think right now what investors are grappling I with is what happens if that does occur? Like, okay. how does in NVIDIA get hit? And the answer to that is probably they have, you know, 15, 20% revenue exposure. Now, what they did the last time around uh, such a ban was imposed was they offered a lower performance variant which didn't fall in the restrictive category and they were still able to sell to China. So you could expect something similar from the chip makers. They'll try to skirt around those restrictions uh, by offering some other variant. I still think, you know, uh, relocating the supply chains is going to be much harder, and that is the biggest risk for all these uh, chip makers is you're still going to Taiwan. Taiwan has elections next year. There's a lot that could happen, you know, in terms of uh, low probability events actually happening or there is that mm -hmm. risk that they could occur. So that's yeah. that's where we are at, you know. In terms of the risk of bringing things stateside, I'm curious about the CHIPS Act because Anna Wan had an amazing uh, piece about this, looking at how the CHIPS Act could be adding to the U.S. GDP and having a negative effect on those inflation pressures uh, because we're seeing so much investment and construction regarding uh, chip making here in the states. Are you hearing about that from your sources, kind of a flood of money into that stateside? I mean, there is, and uh, every government right now wants that, you know, uh, manufacturing to come back when it comes to semiconductors. The mm -hmm. problem is uh, these are multi-year investments. So you start building a fab now, it's not going to be uh, productive for a couple of years, and that also is a phased approach when it comes to, you know, the 3 nanometer or the 5 nanometer. We're talking about leading node chips here. Those are the ones that are being restricted in terms of sales. And I would argue it's not going to be at least three, four years before you are going to see leading uh, node manufacturing here uh, in the developed countries. So where are we now 
a week later since maybe the last time we talked to you about AI. What are you hearing from in investors here? How, how are they going about trying to play this theme? I know you guys have a big research report on, which I highly recommend to folks that are on the Bloomberg terminal, um, kind of laying out the market and the opportunities yeah. and so on. But when you talk to institutional investors, how are they playing it right now? Well, so clearly everyone wants exposure and hardware and semiconductors is still the most tangible thing. On the software side, you know, you have Snowflake and other database companies that are trying to leverage uh, the capabilities that NVIDIA or some of these new types of chips offer. But at the end of the day, everyone is trying to build the compute capacity to, uh, you know, uh, ingest their proprietary data, the, uh, build a large language model. And over time, you're going to find new use cases emerge, which are more domain specific. But uh, right now, everyone wants to build on top of ChatGPT or, you know, the large language models that are out there and see what they can get in terms of a new output. And I think that's uh, the phase where you're in. But everyone feels this is a strategic imperative right now from an IT spending perspective. And they, this is as non-discretionary as it can get. Does it seem to you that the C3 AIs, those those kind of, uh, they're not meme stocks, but meme stocks in air quotes there, um, are falling to the wayside now, or are we still seeing um, more euphoria around some of those uh, smaller names? I think the way you have to think about it, and we lay this out in a report, there is an infrastructure layer for generative AI, which is dominated by the hyperscalers along with NVIDIA. And mm -hmm. then you have the platform uh, layer where every company is offering you know, a platform or something, a workbench, where you can build your applications on top of. And so the compute yeah. capacity will continue to come from the hyperscalers. But when it comes to the platform layer, it's very fragmented and it's going to be very domain specific. Every industry, whether it's healthcare, you know, industrials, they'll have their own player in terms of offering a platform where uh, you, you're going to build an application. So C3.ai would fall in that platform layer. Yeah. How big that opportunity is going to be, no one can tell right now because ultimately it comes down to ROI, right? Can you, well, can you generate ROI? I guess I'm curious then what you think about a company like a Kroger mentioning AI mm -hmm. eight times in their earnings. Do you think that there are some companies that like, uh, you don't need to be mentioning this? Any company that has large amounts of data and they have digitized their systems okay. feels they have proprietary data to field this uh, to this large language model. Yeah. What kind of output or productivity they can generate? I don't think they have a clue but at yeah. least they are investing with the hope that they can leverage their proprietary data. Okay. What's the number one topic with your clients these days? Is it AI? I think everyone is uh, focused on generative AI, but they want to uh, go to you know the medium to long-term outlook in terms of who has a real moat versus you know what is near term and uh, it will phase out uh, because right now as uh, Madison uh, said you know every company is talking about it in their earnings call obviously some of it is hype and uh, I, I think you will see some real winners and losers emerge all right Madison just sent me this really cool tweet <laughs> about Airbnb and I don't know it's from this guy Nick yeah. Gurley I don't know who it is um, talking about Airbnb revenue top 10 cities it's dropping like crazy. 40, 50%, why is that? Well, so travel, I think, is in that phase where consumer travel ha was very strong, very resilient, and right now you could argue the comps are getting tougher for okay. these companies. And if there is any type of slowdown, the one area where you think it's gonna hit is, uh, I think, consumer travel. Business travel continues to be strong, but mm -hmm. it was slow to come back. And that's where uh, there is that risk that you know growth can decelerate sharply. Airbnb, we know it's still alternative accommodations. And uh, I think a lot of people are thinking about the addressable market. Is it really that big to justify a premium that Airbnb had? I mean, it's interesting. Again, uh, Maddie, thanks for forwarding this tweet oh, yeah. here, but like Phoenix, Year over year for the month of May, uh, Airbnb revenue. Phoenix off 47%, Austin, Texas off 46%, Myrtle Beach 45%. These are, you know, Asheville, North Carolina off 42%. So these are towns that just were COVID towns, if you will. COVID yeah. cities, people bailing out of the coast, going to the, the you know, the, the Austin, Texas is the Phoenixes of yeah. the world. And I guess that was a huge benefit for Airbnb at the time. 
now you're just saying maybe some comps issues. Absolutely. And uh, we've seen that time and again. I mean, look at Zoom. Uh, you know, great COVID pull forward. But after that, the comps got so much tougher that, you know, they struggled uh, for a while in terms of the top line. And so I'm not saying this is going to be another Zoom, but there is clearly a parallel to be drawn. Uh, yeah, and Airbnb stock is still 50% year-to-date. So, yeah, well, uh, yeah, so sorry, Paul, to step on you, but it's yeah. interesting to look at just the, the read-through to the stock. Does this have that impact? Yep. Yeah, interesting. All right, yeah. Mandeep Singh, thanks so much for joining us. Mandeep Singh is one of our leading technology analysts uh, at Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, along with Anurag Rana uh, and the, the whole tech team globally. And what's interesting is, uh, you know, there's, Mandeep and the team came out with this really big report on artificial intelligence, one of the most read research reports from BI. So you can check that out on BI Go, but it's also uh, just kind of investors are really clamoring to kind of figure out what is AI. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg. 1130. All right, we've had some funky C-suite conversations in this studio, and this one I think might top the list. Get this, deep sea mining for like metals that they use in batteries. I don't know what's going on here, Whoa. but we have the CEO here, Gerard Barron, chairman and CEO of the Metals Company. The symbol is, it trades on the NASDAQ. The symbol is TMC. That's what you enter into your Bloomberg terminal and check that out. Gerard, thanks so much for joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. What does your company do? Talk to me like me and Maddie, like we're five-year-olds. <laughs> well, great to be here. So the Metals Company have focused on developing a very large, abundant resource of polymetallic nodules that lie on the seafloor, lie unattached. It's on the Pacific Ocean, about a thousand miles off the coast of Mexico. And they were discovered way back in the 1870s, so almost 150, more than 150 years ago. And what they found is that they're very abundant in nickel and copper and cobalt and manganese. And it's a really interesting project because when we think about the transition away from fossil fuels, people have realized that we're going to need a lot more metals. And we're pushing into frontiers that uh, are very biodiverse and um, you're having to dislodge indigenous communities, uh, having tremendous environmental impacts, as opposed to what we're doing is we're, we're collecting these nodules from an area known as the abyssal zone. It's the most common area on our planet. About 40% of the entire planet is classified abyssal zone. We're 4,000 meters below sea level. There are no plants, so zero flora. And most of the fauna is bacteria living in the sediment. So it makes sense that we're increasing extractive industries in parts of our planet where there is the least life, not the most life. Hmm. So... Again, like I'm a five-year-old, what can this do for us on the planet Earth? Yeah, two, above, above the ocean. Well, <laughs> two things. The International Energy Agency predicts that we'll need to increase extractive industries between 5 and 600% per annum by 2040. So the question is, where are those metals going to come from with the lightest planetary and human impact? So we have to look at a full life cycle analysis at, well, what's, what's it going to mean for indigenous communities? What will it mean to carbon sinks and CO2 emissions and impacts on biodiversity? And so what this resource can do is supply a, a supply of these important battery metals at the bottom end of the impact curve. And it can also address the issue of geopolitics because what the world has woken up to is that when it comes to battery metals, China is OPEC. They yep. dominate it. Yep. They've invested ahead of the curve. And there are no real resources other than this one that could provide mineral independence to the USA. And we saw in the recent 100-day review that the number one strategic priority was to build nickel processing capability in the USA. But the problem is, of course, a lot of land-based ore bodies are very low in grade, and you have to build the processing where the deposit is. And no one wants a mine in their backyard. Even if you yeah. found one in America, getting it permitted is almost impossible. Whereas we have an ocean-based resource. By the way, we've identified 1.6 billion tons mm -hmm. of these nodules. And that's enough to electrify at least 280 million mid-sized EV batteries using a nickel-rich 
cathode chemistry. So that's enough to electrify the entire USA passenger fleet. So we can do two things, supply low impact battery metals and address the security of supply issues that are now top of everyone's mind. All right, I, I understand that. Now explain to me how you actually, what are you mining and how do you get it? Well, so these nodules literally lie on the ocean floor. Think of a golf driving range. So yep. we're literally picking up uh, golf balls. And so that means we send down a robot. We're 4,200 meters below sea level. We have a production vessel that sits on, on top. We've already secured our first one. In fact, last year for six months, we ran our first trials, end-to-end -end trials. And that was done for two things. One was to test our system to get, make sure it's production ready. And secondly, to understand the environmental impacts. So we had another boat out there for six months with 80 people on it, many of them scientists, observing the impacts of the area before we harvested, during harvesting, and after we'd collected all the nodules. And so our robot crawls along the seafloor, lifting these nodules, putting them into an air riser, which vertically transports the nodules to the production vessel. And then that production vessel will stay in production constantly. So it offloads the nodules to a transport vessel, which then carries them to shore. Now, the opportunity, of course, for North America or the West is for us to process those nodules uh, in their backyard. Mm -hmm. But what we've announced is that we're quite advanced with a, a company in Japan because we're also able to utilize existing onshore processing facilities. And that makes it a, a very attractive economic proposition because, of course, normally you have to build your processing where the mine is. But in our case, we're in the middle of the ocean. And, and, and the other great thing about this resource is that if I was to show you one, it's uh, about the size of a potato. And we turn 100% of the mass of this nodule into saleable, usable material. So we mm. generate no waste and no tailings. But the first plant is likely to be in Japan. And that means we'll produce the battery intermediate products of nickel and copper and cobalt and manganese in that market. All right. Let me talk about the economics of this. You guys are pre-revenue right now. Is that correct? That's right. Do you have the capital you need to kind of get to that revenue stage? We will require some more capital. Okay. Um, we've raised uh, money in the last year from existing shareholders. We have some very successful large shareholders, including uh, All Seas, which is our partner on the offshore side. We, have, we count Glencore as a shareholder. They also have an offtake. And we are talking, as we've told the market, to some strategic partners about earning into the asset because the net present value for our first area that we're developing, we know it as Nori Area D, is around $13 billion today. Now, so it's a very valuable asset. And so we're talking to strategics about earning into that asset. Um, and they tend to like that. That's what smaller resource companies, whether it's in mining or yeah. oil and gas, tend to do. They invite the big guys to come and take an economic interest. In our case, though, we have such a broad array of strategics. We have people from the oil and gas, the mining world, the battery precursor world, actual customers. Yep. We're seeing EV companies now start to invest in these uh, supply lines because yeah. they're worried about where are the raw materials going to come from. And so we're, we're talking to many. Fascinating, fascinating story. Um, I want you to come back when you kind of get closer, get further along here, give us an update because this is really interesting. Gerard Barron, he's a chairman and CEO of the Metals Company, uh, traded on the NASDAQ TMC. Uh, fascinating story about the, something I didn't even know existed. I know. That these things are on, and it literally looks like a, a, just a little rock, and you bring it up, yeah. and you can make that into the stuff we need for these batteries. So fascinating story. C-suite conversations here in Bloomberg Markets. You never know who Eric Malo is going to book for us. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Madison Mills and Paul Sweeney here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Let's get right to our markets roundtable. Oh, yeah. Madison, we got some players in here. Vince Signorelli, macro strategist for Bloomberg News, and Callie Cox. She is the uh, eToro strategist. Callie, let, let's start with you. In that clip that Charlie just played, Doug Kask, we had on this morning, 
he was he was just saying basically he thinks this market's super expensive. He's very nervous about about the market, and he goes net short, net long. He's net short right here. What do you think about this market? Is it overextended? Are we too far over our skis here? Yeah, so I think this comes down to if you think the bull market can, can continue, and that seems pretty obvious, but if this is a bull market, you have to remember that bull markets can be fierce, even though we have an uncertain future ahead of us. Since 1950, the first year of every bull market, or in the first year of every bull market, the S&P has risen an average of 43%. So we're a little cautious here. We wouldn't say that we're you know, so pessimistic that we would think prices could go down, but we do think that investors need to tread with caution and really think about quality. Well, what about you, Vince? What are you thinking in terms of whether or not this is a real bull market or if uh, the Wilsons of the world are going to be correct? I think it's a real bull market, and I think Mr. Wilson's going to have... Uh have a nice, interesting conversation with the world come the end of the year. I think, I think <laughs> no, short 3, term. No, 3,900s in your, in your no, predictions No, here. I think we could backtrack, um, you know, 100, 150 points in the S&P. I mean, it, we've come a long way. But uh, the longer term outlook, uh, you know, the markets do not believe what the Fed is saying. I do not believe what the Fed is saying. It's a credibility issue for the Fed to keep pushing this higher rate scenario. I don't think it's real. I don't think it's justified. And when the Fed does pause, this market's going to rock. And I think you could easily see it up around 4,800 in the next 12 to 18 months. So, but... Vince, you know, for better or worse, we just listened this morning from, you know, the ECB had their panel in Portugal and, you know, leader, leading banker after another, including Jay Powell and Christine Lagarde, talking tough. They're, they're talking tough because, again, I think they're so trying to recover from the errors they made by calling inflation uh, transitory. Um, and, and they need to put a face on it. And I think they're going to keep talking that uh, tough to a point where we're going to see real yields rise because inflation is going to come down below levels until they're ready to cut. And what that's going to do, it's going to drive a rally in the bond market, and then it's going to drive that rally in the stock market. And all the time they were talking this morning, yields went down in the U.S., stocks went up in Europe. Well, Kelly, talk to me about that global picture, because you mentioned in your notes that six out of the last seven bull markets started as the Fed lowered rates. So if they cut, does that ruin their end goal here? So I don't think they're cutting anytime soon unless we see a recession. And I think, obviously, that's the wild card that everybody's grappling with. And, yeah. you know, lower Fed rates have come with recessions or have come with crises. So the Fed right now doesn't have a good reason to cut rates. Uh, and they see inflation, you know, quite high, persistently high. So they have a good argument for keeping rates higher. Um, you know, I think that's a good story. It shows that the economy is rocking and rolling, especially when a recession is at the top of investors' minds. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I mean, a lot of the rate-sensitive sectors have rallied on the back of some hope for lower rates. So I think that it's an awkward truth to grapple with, the fact that most bull markets start in the depths of a recession. But I'm not sure that has to be the same case here. And we've seen a lot of things change over the past three years or so. And quite frankly, we could be having a rotating recession at the moment. Hey, Vince, what do you, you, you look at all over the markets, uh, commodities, uh, rates, uh, currencies, all that kind of good stuff. What are you seeing other parts? What are you hearing from some of the, the traders that you talk to, just in terms of, I guess, their willingness to take on incremental risk here? Uh, I mean, I, I think they like the risk scenario in general. Um, they think, the um, uh, for the most part, the dollar has run its course, um, that uh, equities are for real with the, you know, there are obviously exceptions out there. Um, you know, to the point, uh, Callie just made an about interest rates and potential Fed rate pause. Um, you know, I don't think they, I, I agree, they don't have a scenario right now where they're going to be cutting rates anytime soon. But if you look at all the data for June, it points to them holding in July as well. CPI was lower, PPI lower, export-import prices lower, prices paid lower in all the scenarios, sentiment better in terms of expectation. So you don't think they're going to raise in, in July? I'm not saying they won't. I'm saying they don't have a reason to. Okay. Um, the data suggests that they should hold one more time. Now, if the data from June matches the data going into the middle of July, then I think they should hold whether or not they do Again, I still think it's a credibility issue, not a data issue. Kelly, talk to me then about how retail investors should be looking at Fed moves in the market more broadly. Uh, you have a great tweet about how at least one stock from each S&P 500 sector, except for energy, has hit a 52-week high in the past month. How should retail investors be looking at and digesting that? 
Yeah, so I want to remind everybody that retail investors are mainly longer-term investors. They get a really bad knock in the market as being these short-term day trading type speculators. But a lot of retail investors are just investing for retirement or that nest egg, you know, Mm -hmm. that long-term security. So if you're a retail investor, you're looking long-term, you're just taking some money from your paycheck, chucking it into an index fund, you know, review the headlines, be aware of what's going on, but at the same time, Remember that 90% of these headlines don't matter to you and that, you know, even if we do plunge into another bear markets, every bear market that we've hit, we've recovered from. It's all about emotion management. Uh, If you are a little bit shorter term, I would, you know, I would be a little more cautious. I would definitely, you know, consider the headlines more. This is an interest rate sensitive market at the moment. I mean, we've been talking about the Fed for this entire conversation. And the Fed has a really good argument to keep rates high, no matter if they hike or pause in July. So if you're looking over the next three to six months or so, I would really focus on the companies that have those quality balance sheets that can operate in a slowing growth, high rate environment. And that's what we've been telling our customers. I mean, really pay attention to what you're investing in and what can, can survive these grinding conditions. Well, Kelly, I want to ask you a follow up on that because Goldman had a note recently about how when retail investors start to take a little bit of cash, they start to get out. That's an indicator that they're about to miss out on a rally. Uh, (laughs) Talk to me about your view on that. Why do you think the retail investor just gets such a bad rap? Uh, Well, it's a mystery to me. And I mean, you know that I work for a retail brokerage, so obviously I'm biased here. But individual investors have been stronger than than most have thought in this cycle. Mm. I mean, we take a quarterly survey. It's called the Retail Investor Beat Survey. And we flat out ask investors, what are you investing in? What are you thinking about? What are you worried about? Where do you see your money going in the next three months? And their allocations have held pretty steady, even though they've diversified a little bit, they've become a little bit more tactical. And they, like every kind of investor are worried about the future. They're watching their risks. So I'm not quite sure. I, you know, I think that there's been a change in psychology and sophistication of the retail investor you know, since the global financial crisis. And consumers, let's be honest, are in a really good position right now. And most people invest when they have money. So I have no doubt that people are taking chips off the table. Let's be real. But in mass, you know, I think investors are still in it. Hey, Vince, we got a, a company that people kind of come in contact with every day, General Mills make you know consumer product stuff they basically said they can no longer pass price increases through to me and you and Callie walking down the supermarket aisle that to me if I'm the Federal Reserve that's real inflation peaking if not completely you know coming down which you know it just confirms what we've seen from the government data but there's a real company touching real people every mm-hmm. day um, you know do I mean does the market do do Fed officials look at that kind of stuff? Uh, they do. I, I mean, I interviewed Charles Plosser once when I was with Wall Street Journal, and I started the conversation. He cut me off and said, yes, I do go to the supermarket, <laughs> and I do look at the cereal prices. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope that the rest of them follow his lead and still do that. Um, and I think it speaks volumes that when, when you have a large retail, a company that touches retail and basically says, we're at a wall. You know, People are just not going to buy if we keep raising prices. That suggests something that's real over that's a consumer that's starting to change their buying habits and consumers do it's the old story if steak gets too expensive or beef's too expensive you buy more chicken mm-hmm. um, and, and it ha- and it happens and people will move to alternatives uh, if they have to when a prices were through the roof people went to alternatives for for breakfast and I think they'll they'll do the same and considering how much sugar is in cereal it's probably a good idea <laughs> <laughs> Okay, fair enough. But I I do want to get your uh, FX expertise while we have you here. You're an FX guy, obviously. How badly does a company like a General Mills or more broadly other consumer packaged goods companies that have strong international exposure, how badly do they need some more downside for the dollar to be successful in the second half of the year? Big time because they don't hedge. And I've marketed to them forever and they don't (laughs) hedge. Um, They somehow think the dollar is always going to be uh, strong um, and... uh, um, you know they're they're uh, going to have uh, um, or the dollar is going to be weak rather, and they're going to have this great situation. Um, it, it, the the dollar is going to come down. It, mm-hmm. It's overdone, and um, you know the the large corporations, the large cap companies, just literally just don't hedge. And they you'll always see. I mean, you watch the earnings numbers, and the earnings numbers that came out last year in particular were gruesome. With yep. with the strength of the dollar, as they were reporting some huge FX losses. Yeah. So, why well, don't they hedge? Uh, 
It's a it's a CYA story. I mm-hmm. remember speaking to a guy buying a, a company buying a railroad in Australia, and I put a, a pitch together for them to save them potentially thirty million dollars, ten percent. And the treasurer said to me flat out, he said, "If I do this trade, and you're wrong, I'll lose my job." <laughs> I said, "But what about if I'm right and you save thirty million dollars?" He said, "No one will notice." <laughs> he said, so no, every job is the same. Yeah, he said, "There's no reason for me to take this kind of risk. I don't get paid to save the company money on this scenario." Yeah, interesting. Um, Kelly, for your clients, your customers, what are you suggesting? Sector-wise, they allocate mm-hmm. some. Where do they go in the market here? Uh, do you have any some sectors that get that screen well for you guys? Yeah, so when I think about sector allocations, first I think about the economic trend, and I think that's pretty clear at the moment. The Fed has the economy and the vice, a vice. Mm-hmm. They're not letting up anytime soon. Um, you know, if we hit a recession, then you have to rethink the sector allocations, of course. But for now, in a slowing growth, high rate environment, I think it makes sense to look a, a little bit at defensives while keeping your toes in some quality risk as well. And when I say quality risk, I mean looking at those rate sensitive sectors, looking at those sectors that do well in an early bull market, but focusing on the bigger companies that you think can make it through. So is, is, so where does tech fall out in there for you? Mm-hmm. Because tech's been, you know, the miracle seven stocks that have been just kind of the stalwarts so far this year, making up a lot of what they lost last year, granted, but where's tech fit in for you guys? Well, we all know that there are a lot of flavors of tech. Yep. So there's big tech, you know, there are the AI, uh, you know, rising stars that people have been looking at. Um, I like to tell people this, you know, if you're looking at the speculative, smaller tech companies that you, you know, maybe believe in their story, then sure, stay invested in that. But at the same time, remember that this is a very tough operating environment for them. Investment is going down, especially in the early stage companies. And these are the types of businesses that get squeezed by the higher costs and, um, you know, higher, higher, you know, financing rates generally. Mm -hmm. So, you know, big tech, Obviously, they operate in the same environment. You know, I have some thoughts on if they'll lead the next bull market. Um, they're looking a little big and bloated to me, but big and bloated could work here. Hmm. You know, they have really big cash moats and they have strong, healthy profit margins. So investors looking at big tech, that doesn't surprise me. I think that that's a smart idea, especially if you're thinking bigger and durable. Smaller tech, you know, I would say probably think twice about that. A lot of people looking into AI as well. Yes, yeah. So we've seen that on our platform. You know, we see it in the surveys that we watch. And does that surprise you? It doesn't surprise yeah. me. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of hype out there around AI. And I think, you know, you have a good argument for saying that AI will probably change the world in some form or fashion. You know, I'm a little cautious about how how much we attribute to AI at the moment. Hmm. You know, I think it's a groundbreaking technology, but we need to see it flow into economic productivity. Yeah. We need companies to spend on it. We need um, we need real utility from it. We don't just need to talk about it. And I think we can get there, but it's too early to tell. Hey, Vince, real quick, just about 30 seconds. I'm looking at WTI crude oil, $69 a barrel. I mean, where does it go from here? Do I just have to be right on demand? I think it's actually going to be more of a supply issue. I okay. think for it to go up, I think the Saudis are going to have to engineer another another cut, OPEC engineer another cut. We're not yet, as you, as Kelly said, we're in a slower growth environment. This isn't an explosive growth environment. I don't think it's going to come from the demand side as much as it needs to be reduced from the supply side. I mean, we keep hearing about, uh, you know, I mean, the, the they just cut recently, yep. and oil went down. Yep. So it clearly isn't a demand issue. There's going to be there's just too much supply out there. All right, Vince. Thanks so much for joining us, Vince Signorella, macro strategist for Bloomberg News, and Callie Cox, U.S. equity analyst with eToro, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We appreciate getting both of them together talking about uh, these markets. You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Madison Mills and Paul Sweeney here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, let's talk real estate. Let's talk residential real estate. And we can do that with our next guest, Selma Hepp. She's a chief economist at CoreLogic. Selma, thanks so much for, for joining us here. I guess my understanding is if you want to buy a new home, you really only have one choice because people aren't selling their existing homes. So you got to buy a new home, new construction. And that had a huge number, the fastest pace in more than a year just recently. Give us a lay of the land of how the residential real estate market is right now. 
Um, yeah, first, thanks for having me uh, on the show. So um, home sales activity are sort of a tale of two different markets. In terms of uh, new home sales, they're doing really, really well. As you mentioned, they're uh, increased to a 15-month high um, as builders have been able to provide more incentives uh, And uh, on one hand. And on the other hand, as existing home sale inventory is almost non-existent in many markets. So what needs to happen to change that? I know that's kind of the million dollar question here, but is there is there anything that I mean the the that can be done to kind of shift that dynamic? Well, I think, you know, the further we move away from those 3% uh, mortgages and as people, you know, and, and, and there's always a natural uh, transition that people go to through and, and sell their homes and, you know, they, 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 they get a divorce, they have to move for schools, they have to move uh, closer to families. Um, so there's always that natural process of of home sales activity that happens. And so one combined with the other, I think down the road, we are likely to see more new home sales on the market. The other thing is, um, you know, baby boomers are the largest cohort that it had with the highest home ownership rate. And of some 50 percent of baby boomers have owned their homes free and clear. And so for them, uh, low mortgage rates, you know, are not making any difference right now now it's more about making that decision to leave their home um you know and and in light of the fact that that home prices have gone up so much so that may be a difficult decision for them but the mortgage rates themselves are not a constraining factor so i think you know again as we as we move away from those really really favorable mortgage rates we're likely to see more turnover in terms of uh, existing home sales Selma, what are the builders actually building these days? Um, because it seems like what I hear from, you know, pros like you, we really need, you know, kind of first time home buyer kind of homes, entry level homes. And that's not the stuff that's getting built. Because when I talk to home builders, they say, I can make a much better profit margin on some of these McMansions than I can on an entry level house. What are they actually building these days? Well, I mean, so, you know, it's very, it differs regionally very much. Um, and I think in markets where you don't have a lot of uh, regu regulatory constraints, which increase the cost of uh, construction, that those are the areas where you're likely to see more affordable or smaller homes, you know, and, and then on the, on the flip side, the markets that are more expensive, such as the West Coast markets and Mountain West markets, with a lot of regulatory uh, constraints, a lot of uh, costs coming into the construction, uh, just to start build, building a home, that's where we are not likely to see uh, a lot of affordable housing. So, you know, it plays out very interestingly in how where people are moving. So people are moving to those more affordable uh, parts of the country and to, more, you know, where there is more new construction because that's where they can afford. Have we seen a reversal or at least declines, though, in people moving to those areas that are a little are a little bit more affordable as we've seen, you know, employers pushing people to get back into the office, for example? Have we seen that decline in, you know, people moving from New York City to Austin, for example? <laughs> Right. I mean, I think we do. Uh, but again, there's two different types of buyers. There is the uh, the retired buyer and there is the buyer that is still working. Um, and for the buyer that's still working, they are likely to be going back to larger cities. And in our CoreLogic Home Price Index and actually Case-Shiller Index that came out yesterday showed a stronger home price appreciation or at least uh, uh, less of a decline, deceleration in home price appreciation in markets that are more large larger employment markets such as Boston and Chicago, for example. Um, and then you you still have the markets in Southeast and South uh, in Texas and Florida and Carolinas, for example, where you do have uh, retirees going and where you do have those folks that are not necessarily tied to a desk in an office. So, you know, I, I would say that the rate of um, migration has slowed in some ways, but it has not completely stalled. You know, I think we're what we're seeing is we're seeing trends going back to pre-pandemic levels and 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 you know even at those times we did see a lot of migration to those more affordable markets uh selma talk to us about just kind of this new uh construction market new home sales market um uh, we've heard that some builders are actually offering to buy down a buyer's mortgage so the six or seven percent maybe is more like a three or four percent 
are you seeing, is that pervasive out there? Is, is that a good business practice? Is that what's needed to get people into these homes? Well, I, I think in terms of uh, affordability, it does seem like it was needed. Uh, it wasn't until, you know, uh, in new home sales inventory climbed to some uh, 10 months supply at the end of last year when mortgage rates peaked in 7%. And that's when uh, home builders started uh, providing mortgage rate buy downs. And we did see home buyers coming back sort of in hordes in some way. I mean, you can, we can see that by the numbers that were just released yesterday. Um, so people are sensitive to mortgage expenses and uh, typical mortgage payment rose to all time high at the end of last year. So a lot of people are pushed out of the market. So I think it is it is helping. It is helping bring uh, folks back. And uh, but, you know, on the other side, I think one thing we have to keep in mind is that if people, uh, you know, there is no inventory in a lot of markets out there. There's just simply nothing to buy. So people are turning towards areas where there is something to to buy we, because we do have you know millennial population largest cohort in the US that is becoming of uh, coming off first time home buying age and there's some 15 million of them and so they you know they have good jobs they they you know they went through school they they have good incomes and so they are you know likely to want to buy a home irrespective of where mortgage rates right are right now uh, looking at the overall um share of mortgages that were bought that were uh, originated with mortgage rate buy downs it, it has increased from zero you know when we were at a record low mortgage rates mm. to some three percent uh at, in, at its highest points in november in november of last year um so it does seem you know it, it's not a huge increase but yeah. it is it has helped us uh, spur market activity again Selma, really quickly, final 30 seconds here. To what extent are some of the headwinds you're talking about uh, forcing millennials to kind of just say, all right, I'm never going to own a home. I'm just going to keep renting. Are you seeing that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's always sort of been the case for younger, you know, younger people when they're in their early 20s and up to, you know, maybe 25 and they, you know, get out of school and, and they get their that first job and maybe it's not paying what they were hoping to. So they, they're very uh, pessimistic about their uh, homeownership opportunities. I mean, when you think back about a decade ago when we were talking about millennials, you know, becoming that eventually becoming that largest population and we surveyed them and they said, no, I will never buy because what's the point you know it's so expensive uh and and they eventually did so i think you know if we give people enough time to uh you know understand housing market conditions to save some down payment uh, you know, and their wages go up and they they yeah, they couple with another person uh, to have more down payment and more income for that home. I, I think they right. will they will come come into the market. Selma, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, always appreciate getting uh, your thoughts and analysis. Selma Hep, chief economist at CoreLogic, talking about the uh, residential real estate market. Again, we got that uh, new home sales number was just uh, really gangbusters and the fastest pace uh, in more than a year. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.